Women's roles, women's rights, and women's identities in our culture are constantly shifting. This is Unsettled Womanhood, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio that is dedicated to conversations about different aspects of womanhood and what it means to be a woman today. I'm Charity Nebbe. On this episode, Women at Work. The story of U.S. women in the workforce has been told many times. We all know about Rosie the Riveter. But there is much more to the story, and labor statistics can't really cover it. For example, in the early part of the 20th century, just 20 percent of all women were categorized as gainful workers by the U.S. Census Bureau. But so much of the work that women were doing was invisible, not just cooking, cleaning, and raising children, but contributing to farm work or a family business, taking in washing or sewing to make ends meet, and caring for other people's children. As women did start to make inroads in traditionally male-dominated fields, there were other challenges to be faced, as dramatized in the AMC show Mad Men, which took place in the advertising world of the 1960s. Here's a scene where characters Peggy and Joan meet with three men from the agency's new majority shareholder to discuss a potential relationship between Topaz Pantyhose and Marshall Fields. The guys quickly change the subject. Why aren't you in the brassiere business? Excuse me? You should be in the bra business. Your work of art. What she's saying is that wider distribution would mean bigger ad budgets for us. Well, I'd set a lunch, but I think a dinner would be better. And warm them up first. Send a basket of pears to Marshall Fields. The one thing Dan likes is a nice pear. (laughs) (laughs) This guy... A moment from the show Mad Men. And we don't have time to tell the whole story of women and work this hour, but we are going to cover a lot, including occupational segregation and women working in male-dominated fields. Later in the hour, we'll also dig into gender inequality in the workplace and at home. And to start us off, Anne Oberhauser is here. She is a professor of sociology at Iowa State University. Anne, welcome. Thank you very much, Charity. I am really excited to be here. And as I mentioned earlier, the story that we often tell about women in the workforce in this country leaves a lot of women out of the conversation. And I know that that's been an important part of your work. And that's still a problem. We're still leaving a lot of women out of conversations. Tell me a little bit about the women that we tend to leave out of the story. Yeah, well, first of all, I appreciate the starting with this example of not only from Mad Men, but also the Rosie the Riveter, because a lot of my work kind of builds on some of the historical context. And I think it's important to understand where we are today and how that has has kind of evolved from past experiences and generations of women in the workforce. And I usually start a lot of my classes and some of my research with the, the post-World War II era, because I think that was a real turning point for women in the workforce. Um, Of course, during the World War, the Second World War, many women were involved with the wartime efforts and gainfully employed. After men returned from the military and the service, uh, many of these women went back into the domestic sphere. Not all women, a lot of women, women of color in particular, working class um, women, stayed in the workforce and, you know, continued to earn those um, needed incomes But this period was also a shift socially in our country with the baby boom generation, for example. And following the Second World War, there was an increase in number of children and the size of families. 
um, which we're still seeing impacts of today. Um, and so this kind of partly, you know, kept women at home caring for some of these some of these children, um, but also turned people's attentions into the 60s and 70s as more women turned to education with um, legislation such as Title IX, allowing a little bit more equity within education, and also something that some of us take for granted, and that is birth control. And um, family planning became much more accessible and available in the 60s and 70s. So that also shifted women's options and opportunities to time and to you know, have the number of children that they they wanted. Um, so that also opened up a lot of avenues for women entering into the workforce. And a lot of women had education that they wanted to use, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing a, certainly a continuation of that today as uh, women are putting off having children, they're putting off, you know, settling down, getting married, all of this. So demographically, um, some of these shifts have continued into the current generation. Earlier this week on another show, we talked about the history of feminism. And in second wave feminism, there was a real disconnect. A lot of the middle class white women in this movement were fighting for that opportunity to use their education. There were a lot of women in lower socioeconomic classes, including a whole lot of women of color, who were already working and, and saying, what what yeah. does this have to do with us? And and finding finding the the kind of support in the workplace that, that they needed, that was kind of a long time in coming, wasn't it? Yes, yes, no, absolutely. So there are continuing um, those disparities within the race and gender intersection um, in the workplace. And one of the things that as a, an economist, a feminist economist, I look at are, is labor force participation rates. And that's the level of engagement of certain populations within the paid or formal workplace. And for women, women overall have a lower labor force participation rate than men, but white women have um, generally a lower labor force participation than women of color. Because as you were saying, right, women of color have been engaged in employment um, by necessity for the most part throughout the 20th century. And so what white women, for instance, were, were you know, advocating for didn't necessarily resonate with um, women of color in terms of workforce conditions, in terms of pay, in terms of um, access to unions or stable employment. I also want to talk about immigrant women migrant laborers as well. This is another sector of our culture that is often overlooked and often left behind. Yes. So this is, there's a lot of segregation in the, the labor market and in the workforce in general. And again, you can kind of slice and dice this when looking at gender and looking at race and ethnicity and in looking at immigration and immigrants and Generally, immigrant labor tends to be even further segregated or further concentrated in certain um, occupations, and, and women, immigrants in particular. Uh, women tend to be concentrated in lower wage, lower paid jobs, um, and immigrant women in particular tend to be concentrated in, I know, even lower wage or higher concentration in these lower wage or um, lower end jobs. 
So, for example, you can see in some data around domestic care and cleaners or in the healthcare services, um, in other um, occupations, more care labor, child care, there tend to be higher concentrations of uh, immigrant women in particular. So they're, it's, they're kind of um, you know, segregated or, or oppressed, if you will, both, uh, both on the basis of their gender, on the basis of their immigrant status, and on the basis of race and ethnicity. And we see a lot of those caregiving fields they're fields where people cannot make as much money. They're undervalued. Yes, yeah. And that definitely comes out. You had mentioned earlier about the wage gap, and that definitely comes out um, when you look at that pay equity and wage gap. Overall, women make about 84 cents on the dollar that men make. That's just in general, very aggregate. But if you break down um, women by gender or, or by race and ethnicity, um, there are some fascinating data. So, for example, uh, white women make um, about 80 cents on the dollar to a white male. Um, Hispanic or Latina only make 57.5% to the dollar or to the percentage of white males. Wow. And so they're some of the lowest. In the Latina are some of the lowest in terms of that wage gap. And that of course, is reflected in the occupations they have and education, access to education, and a whole variety of things that provide obstacles and barriers. Right. Even though, of course, many of them are doing very necessary work. Right. And often skilled in spite of maybe not having um, the, the kind of educational status. So I, I do want to play just a clip here. The Nobel Prize in Economics was just awarded to Claudia Golden of Harvard University for her work, which, among other things, delved into the causes of the gender wage gap. And I want to play this clip from an interview she gave to NPR's Planet Money. So I would never say that there is no discrimination and no sexual harassment at all. But the majority of the gap, particularly for women who have caregiving responsibilities is due to the fact that women often step back and the men in their lives step forward. And they do this in part to optimize the family income, the household income. That's just a little bit of Claudia Golden of Harvard University. And, and I mean, this is such a complicated story. It goes Yes. <laughs> it goes <Yes>. so, so <laughs> deep in so many ways. But um, she has sort of pinpointed this moment for a lot of women where that pay gap widens after giving birth to a first child. Yes. Yeah, there are a lot of, I, and I call them kind of structural inequalities. They're societal, broader societal issues, um, starting with parental leave and um the lack of paid parental leave in many workplaces. So if women do do step back, and by necessity, right, you have to take some time off. Um, it's it's oftentimes unpaid, so that's a disadvantage. Raising children, um, and again, oftentimes women, they're you're debating or you're comparing. Well, the cost of childcare and what percentage of my overall income is that? And if it's fifty or seventy percent of your overall income that goes to paying for childcare, that's right. You make Question, you question um, those payoff, those trade-offs, and 
and the cost of child care. We always look at, and when I talk about child care and the importance of it in our society, there are three things I look at. One is, of course, quality child care. You want, you want good quality child care. Affordability in terms of child, child care. And I think there's, we have a long ways to go in terms of making it affordable and also accessible so that it's accessible for all women. And I want to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Ann Oberhauser. She's a professor of sociology at Iowa State University. We are talking about women at work this hour, women in the workforce and women's work in the home as well. We'll continue this conversation in a moment. This is Unsettled. Honey, I work so hard for my money and I leave my babies at home. Breaking my back, trying to bring home a check I'm working my fingers to the bone At the end of the day, feels like a game One I was born to lose And this institution and dead revolution Is giving young women abuse This is Unsettled from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This season, we are exploring different aspects of womanhood. And right now, we're talking about women at work, women in the workforce, and women's work at home. With me right now is Anne Oberhauser. She's a professor of sociology at Iowa State University. And Anne, just before the break, we were starting to explore the wage gap. And there's this moment in time when if a woman becomes a mother after she has had her first child, that's a point where the wage gap tends to broaden. There are economic implications of becoming a mother, caring for your children in so many different ways. But I I want to explore one aspect of that because that story sounds really familiar to a lot of people to step back after the birth of a child. And it's not just an economic decision. In my case, I mean, that sounds just like me, but it wasn't all about money. It was a decision because I wanted to be able to spend more time with my kids. And then there were definitely economic consequences. So there are a lot of different elements to this decision. And I do understand that I was in a privileged position to make that choice. But this is sticky. This is really complicated. Yes, no, exactly. And I I also look at the long-term implications. Um, You know, we can look at a a year or two or six-month loss of um, income, for example, while you're spending those early months or year with children after their birth or adoption or other means of having children. Um, But I think some of the long-term implications have real financial financial consequences. So in terms of um, retirement and money paid into a pension, money paid into Social Security drop, during the, those periods of loss of income, so that in the long term, um, you know, older women, women in general tend to have less income, but even older and women live longer. So that has long, even longer term implications with um, higher poverty rates among elderly, elderly women. There's some interesting economic aspects of this too. And now with a lot of the attention paid on student debt, we are finding that women actually take on more student debt than men, so they have higher debts to pay off. This is in part due to the gender gap, and also because of this gender gap, they're paying off their loans more slowly than men, so it it goes further into their careers. So that's another kind of trade-off, you know, and just 
setbacks that women face financially um, because of having children, because of choosing to go or getting access to education, um, and the overall pay gap. So I would love, before you and I say goodbye, what do you think we can do? And we have made progress. That pay gap is still there. It's obviously is still significant, especially cents to go. Right. And for women of color, it's even more significant. But what what are your recommendations? How do we move forward from this moment? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we can look at several different levels, both the individual, family, workplace, and state and national policies. Um, Starting with the workplace, I think workplace and employers um, need to be more flexible and more supportive of, of women, all the way from harassment they experience to having children to elder care that women also disproportionately have and shoulder. So I think the flexibility, more family-friendly policies are certainly ways of attracting um, women and others into, their, into these workplaces. And also retention is important in terms of providing this flexibility. I think, and kind of going back to the child care topic, um, there there really needs to be um, much more support and much more provision of this affordable, accessible child care in our society at all levels. And I know that here in, in Iowa, we're working on some of this in terms of recognizing this crisis and the need to address some of these shortages. Um, also, I think that political representation and having women at the board table you know, in the decision-making uh, positions, making policy, nobody knows this better than women who have experienced this. So I think having more women in leadership and in decision-making positions can certainly go a long ways to um, addressing some of these injustices and disparities. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Ann Oberhauser is a professor of sociology at Iowa State University. And when we talk about women working, it needs to be acknowledged once again that women have always worked. It's just that traditionally, many women did primarily domestic labor, the vast majority of which was unpaid. Even though the world has changed dramatically, the work of women is still shaped by our traditional roles in some powerful ways. Mary Noonan is back again today. She's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Iowa, and she studies gender inequality in the workplace and at home. Welcome back, Mary. Thanks for having me again. So I was just talking with Anne uh, about the pay gap, and I'm not quite ready to move on from that. And I know that you've done research with U of M law school graduates about the fact that men and women who have graduated from law school are entering the workplace at, with the same credentials and at similar pay, right? Exactly. So uh, this study of University of Michigan law school graduates was uh, important and in the sense that the women and men graduated from the same top-tier law school, had uh, similar grades in law school, um, and were highly motivated and career committed. You don't go to law school, especially one like the University of Michigan, if you aren't driven, in a sense, by your career. And we found that um, when they graduated, uh, the men and women, before they had children, were making very similar uh, choices, had similar pay. But after the first child arrived, was born, uh, there was a divergence in these men and women. Again, same law school, same profession. Um, and we found that uh, mothers uh, 
earned less than fathers, and fathers, in fact, earned more than childless men. Um, and we found that the mothers from the University of Michigan Law School were significantly less likely to make partner, which also pays a lot more. So that was another reason for uh, the difference in earnings. And I guess I find this group super interesting because, like I said, you don't go to law school just on a whim. It is something that is uh, really thought out. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money. And so I find them a really interesting group because oftentimes when people are comparing men and women, this idea of commitment is the kind of a black box. Do women have the same level of commitment as men? And so you would argue or you could argue that um, in this group, they're very, very similar levels of commitment. Well, and I will argue forever that it is a woman's prerogative if she wants to spend more time with her kids that she can step right. back and spend more time right. with her kids. There's nothing wrong with making that choice. There's nothing wrong with men making that choice. Right. Um, but <laughs> even, you know, when a woman maybe scales back her time, takes time away. We see this disparity when she is fully engaged in the workplace again. Right. And so that was really kind of the key finding. Uh, We looked at the data set or the survey asked this very interesting question for um, my colleague and I. They said, how much time did you take off to raise your kids? And they asked it of both moms and dads. Moms were way more likely to do it. Some dads did. Um, And that And then we found that it was really that time off that hurt the moms later on. It wasn't just being a mom. So if you were a mom who did not take any time off, you earned the same as the fathers. It was the women who took time off, and about 70% of them did. And um, this idea of, you know, what is it about the time off? Do your skills get rusty? Do you, you lose contact with you know, uh, people in your Rolodex, so to speak? Or is it that when you come back, the employer thinks that those women who did spend time with their kids are less less driven or committed, right. or they don't feel like they can really tackle the project because they've shown in the past that, that they have another priority. Exactly. exactly. And we all do know that parenthood does shift your priorities in the world. It changes your worldview. Absolutely. Um Workplace structure, however, reinforces this divide and the way that women are treated differently. Tell me more about that. Right. So we have this idea in our workplace still today of um, an ideal worker. And so this person is committed 24-7. They place a high uh, emphasis on work. Um, FaceTime is important. And you, um, this kind of ideal worker is really kind of driven to perform. And This idea kind of, you know, was prominent in the 50s and 60s when most men had a stay-at-home spouse and um, in the middle class and an upper class. And so this person could take care of all that needed to be done as far as household management. Now it's kind of uh, ridiculous to assume that uh, since most couples are dual earner couples, um, that there is kind of a stay-at-home person who can manage the household, grocery shopping, laundry, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, in the field of law, a male-dominated field, there still is this idea that you are this committed 24-7 kind of person. And if you go on um, an alternative track, which some people call the mommy track, um, 
it's 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 available to you, but it's still penalized. And I think that's the thing that I find frustrating um, as a researcher and someone who's interested in gender inequality, that we, we say that there's, there's these other options, but then we penalize people who do them. And the, the interesting thing about the Michigan study was that the men who did it were also penalized. We, we've seen work shift a lot in the last three years, largely because of the pandemic. But it does, it raises some interesting questions about how this will develop in the future. Because, I mean, clearly that kind of structure makes a lot of people unhappy in the workplace, men or women. Right, right. So now we have, um, obviously, a lot more people who are able to do remote work since COVID. Um, and most employees are very happy with it. It allows them a more flexible schedule, allows them to attend to home life um, more easily during the workday. And um, I think people are kind of upset when employers say, you know, you must return to the office X number of days a week. Um, and so perhaps um, perhaps with this big change to remote work, um, different uh firms and organizations that historically kind of expected people to be on call in the office um, will will kind of change their culture. So that workplace structure reinforces these gender divides in our culture. And I mentioned earlier that, of course, historically speaking, women did so much work in the domestic realm. We still see that women in partnerships with men or partnerships with people of any gender, men, right. women tend to do the majority of the household work still, even if both partners are working outside the home. Absolutely. And um, men have significantly increased their time over the last 30 years. So um, that's an important point to make, especially with respect to childcare, less so with respect to housework. But women even when they earn the same amount of money as their spouse or partner, when they work the same number of hours, they still do more. And that's what is really kind of a puzzle to sociologists. Why is it? Because we historically thought, oh, it's an economic decision. It's a rational cost benefit. You make less, you don't work as much, so the woman will do more. But now a third of couples, in a third of couples, the woman is the main breadwinner. And she still does more housework. And so the idea that sociologists have come up with is maybe she is doing this in part to show society, show her colleagues, show her neighbors that she has not um, abandoned her family, that she still wants to be seen as a good mom, one who makes home-baked treats for the school field trip, one who um, hasn't forgotten to take care of her family. So that's another fascinating um Area. Well, and I think there, there is a, a level of societal judgment, too. I mean, when you walk into somebody's messy home, often the woman is going to feel that you are judging her for that messy home. Absolutely. So this idea of what it means to be a good mom, a good wife versus a good dad and a good husband. Al although men today say they want an equal partnership with women, they want to do the same amount of housework. They want to be on equal footing. Um, when it comes down to it, I think women do feel judged and um, they are judged. 
It's not just that they feel it. They are judged about what being a good mom or a good woman means. We talk a lot these days. We never did when I was growing up, but we talk a lot these days about the mental load or emotional labor. How does that factor into this? Absolutely. So um, just the pure management. This morning, I was thinking about, you know, the temperature's getting colder. I need to buy my daughter a new pair of boots. Her feet are getting bigger. And so I needed to get online. And of course, like with many people, this takes forever because I'm um, shopping around. And then I needed to think about what she was doing this weekend and next week. And there's just a lot that goes into paying bills, organizing activities, scheduling doctor's appointments, um, that uh, women constantly have running in the background of their mind. So it's not just the actual physical, you know, loading the dishwasher, doing the laundry. It's all of the um, mental labor. So let's look around the world a little bit. Do you see places in the world that are doing this better than we are? Yeah. So if you look at Western Europe, um, researchers have uh, studied Western Europe in part because they have much more family-friendly policies, um, longer paid parental leave. And so the idea is that, um, we'll take Sweden, for example, if we encourage men, if we actually offer them paid parental leave, um, perhaps by encouraging them to um, get in on the caretaking from the very, you know, day one after the child is born, they will become more um, uh, attached, um, more um, comfortable with doing household tasks. And um, and this is borne out in, uh, in empirically. So if you look at countries where family-friendly policies that um, encourage men to take a bigger responsibility at work and um, encourage women to take, um, you know, a serious role in the workforce, you find that in those countries, there's a more even division of labor in the household. And we only have one minute left. And, and I hate to say this, we have focused primarily on um, middle class families in this conversation. And women, families in lower socioeconomic statuses really struggle with this as well. Yes. And so um, I think one of the big issues for women with uh, lower income levels um, is that uh, childcare is often not affordable. It's it's actually sometimes more than they make. And so it makes it so they can't work because from a very uh, straightforward, um, you know, level, they, they can't afford it. Um, also, childcare in our country is typically set up for nine to five people with office jobs, and many women who are low income have schedules that are unpredictable, night shift. And so for them, um, unless they have a family member who can step in, it's very difficult to even think about working for pay. Right. And if you work an hourly job and you have to leave because of a family crisis, absolutely, you don't get paid. Yep. And the consequences can be major. Yep. He'll play cool when he hangs out with a woman like you. Say he pressed. Mary Noonan is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Iowa. She studies gender inequality in the workplace and at home. We're talking about women's labor in the workforce and at home. And in a moment, we'll talk about women working in male dominated fields. This is Unsettled from IPR News.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Unsettled from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are talking about women's labor in the workforce and at home. And women today are still breaking boundaries in male-dominated fields. In a moment, Jennifer Shearer, director of State Worker Power Initiatives with the Economic Policy Institute, will be here. But first... Hi, uh, my name is Amanda Cooling, and I am a low-voltage technician uh, here with the... International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers in Cedar Rapids, Local 405. Going into the apprenticeship, I, I wasn't sure what all to expect. I, I was expecting a lot of white males to be there with me, um, just going on the stereotype of what construction industry looks like. But I was pleasantly surprised when in my class of roughly 17 people, I wasn't the only woman. So it was really exciting for me because we had three other ladies and my instructor is actually a female. And it was really encouraging for me to um, to not be the only one. There's definitely things that um, take a bit more planning on a, on a woman's part, trying to, you know, sometimes just get basic things like safety equipment. You know, try to find a steel toe shoe in five and five and a half. It's a realistic problem because, you know, you have to have this apparel. But when you can't find something that fits you correctly, at what point does it then become a hazard because you're tripping or it's catching? You know, the same thing can be said for, you know, others, PPE, you know, uh, protection equipment that's meant to keep you safe is not really... Um, made for smaller frames or, you know, specifically for women in mind. Then other challenges tend to come up on your more basic needs of, you know, just like your bathroom facilities. Um, you know, there's porta-potties, um, trying to make sure that the water stations are there for sanitary purposes, which is there for men and women. But with women, women having menstruation, you know, that's still going to happen whether you're on a construction site or not. And so whether or not you're having your hand washing stations or your receptacles to throw your, you know, technically biohazardous waste in, you know, might not always be there. Or if you're, you know, you're out doing a site, you know, work and there might not be a porta potty you know, where's the closest bathroom that you can get to to have some of these things? Your pumping stations, right? Um, construction sites are not known for having all of the proper places for women to go and have her privacy to be able to do that. Being pregnant in the trades can be very challenging. I was blessed in that I had a normal pregnancy, um, but that's not always the case. So you have to think about your environment that you're in. You know, what might be just a painter painting in the other room is now a flag, but you have to be careful because you shouldn't be inhaling those fumes, especially when you're pregnant. Or you, know, you have to think about your additional safety. Women's safety, PPE I, just, I covered previously, is one of the things that are hard to find. So then trying to find maternity PPE is even harder. So you have to think about, you know, how far up can you go in these ladders? You know, how much are you willing to carry without your balance being affected? But then not only do you have to think about yourself, lots of times it's a challenge because you then have to educate the people who are on your shift Unfortunately, we do still have some sexism in this industry. Uh, to me, I, I can tell that it's changing. 
most of mine has been pretty minimal. It's it's come from things of maybe someone doesn't believe I can carry something on my own or insistent that, you know, they help me with the ladder. I'll give it to them. I'm 5'3", and carrying a, a 12 to 14-foot ladder looks really awkward for me. You know, it it is kind of fun to show them up almost or over-explain back to them because um, as a common term is mansplaining can get pretty old. But, you know, everybody has a different way of handling it, and it seems that people are becoming more aware of this, especially as the younger generation is starting to fill those shoes of the older generations. Don't let the fact that there's not many women out there scare you that, you know, it's not a place for you or maybe, you know, I'm not tall enough or I'm not strong enough because believe me, even as a five foot three woman, I love this job and it provides me so much uh, satisfaction at the end of the day to be able to look back and see, you know, what you've accomplished. You know, there's all these little intricacies that really make your mind work and it keeps it from being boring. You're definitely needed in this field because we can't change it without more women wanting to be here, too. Amanda Cooling is an electrician in Cedar Rapids. She's also president of the Iowa Women in Trades, a multi-craft network of women in construction across the state. And Jennifer Shearer is next. She is director of State Worker Power Initiatives with the Economic Policy Institute. She also helped to start the Iowa Women in Trades Network. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks, Charity. It was great to have a chance to listen to Amanda talk about her experience a little bit. And, you know, just want to say what a privilege and an honor it has been um, a few years ago to work with Amanda and a small, intrepid group of other tradeswomen um, to launch that Women in Trades Network for Iowa. And uh, just want to, you know, shout out to all the folks who've carried on that work. Um, I, I was had the chance to start that work with Amanda and others when I was at the University of Iowa Labor Center. And folks there are continuing, um, along with our state building and construction trades council, to really support and expand that work, which is fantastic. I want to talk a little bit about the culture in Iowa to start with, because I think a lot of people stereotype Iowa as being a very traditional state. But Iowa has had a high percentage of women and working mothers in the workforce for a long time. And, and we continue along with that tradition, a modern tradition. Tell me more about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was y- your other guests have really laid the groundwork with a lot of reminders of the way in which our economy continues to undervalue women's labor and also provides unequal opportunities for women at just about every point of their education, their training and career choices. And Iowa is no different, uh, except that Iowa women, you've done a great job of making this point, uh, Charity, a couple times, is Iowa women have always worked. Um, I mean, I happen to be a fourth generation Iowan. And, you know, the lore in my Iowa family history, um, my grandmother very likely, uh, you know, did not have a choice to begin work. Her her mother, um, a Danish immigrant to Iowa, died very likely Mm -hmm. from having too many children to close together. Um, And so when my grandmother was 10, her mother died, and she was very quickly sent out to work as a domestic laborer for most of her uh, youth and through her teen years. Um, That wasn't a choice she had, but um, she continued to be an incredibly hard worker uh, throughout the rest of her life, but with a lot of, you know, psychological and health consequences um, of not having um, a very um, safe or um, uh, enjoyable childhood. Um, And we know that uh, women's labor force participation rates in Iowa um, 
have typically been a bit above uh, national averages. We also always tend to rank um, in the top 10 of states with uh, multiple uh, parents in the workforce. And so, you know, the acuteness of some of the challenges that folks have talked about around childcare are especially um, relevant to our state. We know that these days women can be found in almost every field, and a lot of men have also shaken off their traditional workforce roles as well. But there are still strong patterns of what we call occupational segregation. Tell me what we see along those lines. Yeah, that uh, occupational segregation is uh, built in to our labor markets. And, you know, I think what I tend to focus on both from so much that I've had a chance to learn from women who are leaders in their workplaces and leaders in their labor unions, and also from uh, economists that I now have a chance to work with, is that that is a challenge that we cannot resolve uh, through um, individual choice. Uh, those are systemic uh, problems, in many cases built into um, some of our laws and policies, and that we have to have collective solutions. Um, and so, you know, the other thing that is um, really important about Iowa is we have a lot of um, both past and present uh, women leaders who have really been heroes in um, breaking down those barriers. And then also expecting and demanding equity in workplaces where they may be, uh, you know, one among just a few of the first to enter an occupation that's been historically male dominated. I can imagine that there are still people who who question and say, why why does it matter? Why can't we have a male document or dominated workforce? Why why struggle against that when there are so many women already in the workforce? Why is it so important, Jennifer? Well, I think we've got multiple types of inequality, and they sort of layer onto each other. Um, in some cases, you know, the gender wage gap comes from disparities within an individual workplace where men and women may be doing exactly the same job and not getting paid the same for it. Uh, but then we have this broader problem of occupational segregation where historically uh, female-dominated occupations have just been undervalued and continue to be undervalued. So if we think about uh, the care sector, um, education, jobs that traditionally have been done by women are not less valuable to our economy and in some cases not less profitable for uh, private employers um, who are hiring people to do that work. But it's been accepted that women are paid less. And so, again, we need very systemic um, uh, collective solutions to that. Um, you know, I tend to look to uh, labor unions as one of the clear vehicles that women have used for closing that pay gender gap, both within workplaces. I'm one, one thing that a lot of women who've been part of organizing their workplace will say is it, as soon as you get a union contract in place, suddenly the problem of pay transparency goes away. Everybody knows what everybody else's wage is because you've negotiated it together. And the clarity of everybody who's doing the same job for the same length of time or with the same degree of qualifications knows what the pay scale is, it just gets rid of that uh, gender and, and also the layer of often racial discrimination that's built into pay scales sometimes. So within workplaces, that's one way women have tackled that problem. Uh, but then broader in terms of occupation-wide, um, policies that are designed to um, address what's called comparable worth. Um, you know, we've had uh, in Iowa legislation on that in the past that workers have used, particularly in the public sector, to do a classification-wide study of 
what are the jobs in, for example, the university system um, where clerical work historically had been done by women, maybe some of the maintenance and um, other jobs had historically been done by men, but the pay disparities were very huge. And, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, this was a big trend to go through and look at those classifications and try to pull up the wages of female-dominated occupations to be more equivalent. Um, uh, because it wasn't that folks were less valuable or less educated. Um, it was just that they were of different genders to, uh, in those occupations. Uh, but again, that had to be done collectively and with a lot of, um, uh, with a lot of pressure. Right. As women integrated um, different workplaces and continue to do so, I mean, we know that there are laws to protect against discrimination and to protect against sexual harassment, etc. However, this is still a, a reality. And I suspect for women who are still uh, breaking into these male dominated fields, it is a, a real challenge. What do we see? Yeah, I think we heard from Amanda uh, talking about the reality of work in construction um, and knowing that she's going to be still in the minority as a woman on most job sites. A couple of hopeful uh, signs. Um, and I would say I see this as well in, in folks that I've talked to and work with. One is a real generational shift in expectations across genders um, about what kinds of conditions and circumstances people want to encounter in the workplace. And I think, uh, you know, younger folks have higher expectations, both for how they're going to be compensated, but also how they're going to be treated and how they're going to treat each other. Um, that, uh, you know, can lead to some interesting tensions with folks who have been used to accepting, you know, toxic work environments or forms of harassment. Right, that, this is just you know, the way it's done. A lot of younger folks are like, uh, we don't have to do it that way. And so, uh, you know, I put a lot of faith in um, younger people who are beginning to change those cultures, which is, uh, which is hard work. And the only way that we're going to um, get to more respectful workplaces, um, the, the reality in terms of, uh, of male-dominated occupations like construction, in terms of how we actually start to move the needle overall on numbers, though, is that it has required a very systemic and programmatic approach. Um, nationally, we have not increased the percentage of women in frontline con skilled construction trades since 1978. Oh, wow. It's unbelievable. Like, the numbers have not budged except they have budged very significantly <clears throat> in some states. And when you look at what those states have done, it's a, it's a big package of policy interventions, placing new expectations on the industry and on contractors, and doing some of the things that Amanda talked about in terms of visibility, programmatic outreach, education to young women about the opportunities and uh, the careers that are available to them. Uh, programs like pre-apprenticeship, which is one of the things uh, the Labor Center also helped launch in Iowa so that women, black and brown workers who have traditionally been excluded from construction trades are actively uh, being invited into a process to prepare for then applying for apprenticeship and being successful and have we seen how much have we seen that needle move in Iowa? I think we're at the beginning phases. And the other piece of it that we don't yet have in Iowa is the uh, the requirements and the incentives that we need to put in place for contractors to say we got to set goals. We have to set goals and say we want to see X percent of women on this big major project. That's how that's how they really begun to move the needle in places like Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington. And, you, and when you look at what they've done over the past decades, it's really been remarkable. So, again, I think we're at the early stages of that. Do you and think there's political will for that in Iowa right now? 
I think we got to talk about the reality of the, the political context in Iowa. Um, it, uh, I know in our discussion uh, on the show today, it's cropped up a couple of times that representation and leadership from women is important. But I also think we're living in a reality where we have the first woman governor of Iowa, but we are not seeing policies that would actively move the needle on things like uh, occupational segregation or packages of policies that would really support working women. Um, if we look even, you know, an hour to the east or a couple hours to the north, uh, uh, what we what we uh, uh, see a data showing us at EPI is that working women do better in a context where minimum wage is higher, where um, collective bargaining rights are stronger. When we rolled back collective bargaining rights for public employees in Iowa, that hugely disproportionately affected women because the occupations that are losing their ability to bargain for better conditions, combat discrimination, are occupations like teachers, education, public service, healthcare, um, and strengthening laws against discrimination, providing paid sick leave and paid family leave. We've got so many states where women are beginning to close that gender pay gap a little more. Iowa is not one of them. And we are still, our, our gender pay gap is actually bigger than the national average. Jennifer, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Jennifer Shearer is director of State Worker Power Initiatives with the Economic Policy Institute. She also helped to start the Iowa Women in Trades Network. We've been talking about women's labor in the workforce and at home. And on our next episode, we will ask... What does it mean to be a woman today? Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Unsettled is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Danny Gear, Samantha McIntosh, and Caitlin Troutman. Our production assistants are Maddie Willis and Kate Perez. And our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. We get digital support from Matt Sierran and Josie Fishels and technical support from the IPR Broadcast Operations Team. Give it, they just use your mind.